Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome back to RD and the Inbetweens. I hope you've all been well during my hiatus and I'm back with a really fascinating discussion this episode. Over the past few months during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've all had to learn a new range of skills. For academics and for teachers, this has involved learning not only new technologies, but new pedagogies and for students, new ways of learning. At the University of Exeter, we've actually had a webinar programme that mirrors our face-to-face workshop training and development programme for about eight years. So our students are well-versed in learning and undertaking training and development online. In a lot of the discussions we're having now um, on a sort of local and national level, we're talking about the experience of academics and moving into the online environment. And I don't think there's been enough focus on the student experience and what it's like to learn and what makes good online teaching and specifically for me, good online training and development. So I asked a few of our PGRs to join me to have a discussion about online training and development, what works for them and what it means for them to have a good rounded learning experience online. Is everyone happy to introduce yourself? So can we start with Edward? Yeah, hello. My name is Edward. I am just about still a postgraduate research student uh, at the University of Exeter. I am in the awkward post-submission pre-virus stage and I've uh, been involved in quite a lot of online stuff that Kelly's been uh, organising over the last few months from uh, writing retreats to research and development sessions. Great. Uh, Pauline? Hi, my name is Pauline McGonagall. Um, I am doing a collaborative PhD with the British Library and Exeter, and I'm at the, I suppose, the end part of the PhD in that I'm in year five of six, and with a bit of extension now, it'll go on a little bit further. Um, my work is generally archival, etc., and so um, I'm in a write, you know, writing phase at the minute, not being able to access that. But in terms of um, webinars and online activity with Exeter, it's absolutely been crucial for me because I live in Dover. And when I do attend campus, rarely, um, it's for, you know, periods of two or three weeks to do something specific or for our meetings. So I've been using online and online career careers. Uh, webinar training and the shut up and write sessions have all been really really important to me as well. Brilliant thank you. Uh, Jennifer? Hi I'm Jennifer I'm a second year PhD student in biosciences. I am working with a fish farm up in Anglesey to try and improve the production and welfare standards for fish that are being farmed. I have taken part in a couple of things which Kelly's run before And I've also facilitated a couple of sessions um, with the research development programme, including designing research posters and presentation skills for researchers, which I facilitated both in person and um, as a webinar. Brilliant. Thank you. Megan? Uh, Hi, I'm Megan Maunder. I'm about to go into my third year of the PhD in the mathematics department. I um, am in the space weather department, and I primarily look at coronal mass ejections, which are large balls of plasma that come off the sun. Uh, broadly, I've been I've done quite a lot of the um, online research and development courses, but also I do a lot of outreach and public engagement. So I've been translating a lot of my face to face sessions to online, which has been um, a learning curve. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've learned quite a bit about how to try and keep people engaged and the different mediums that also work for me in leading those sessions. Great. And Philippa? Hi, um, I'm Philippa. I am doing a PhD in the Theology and Religion uh, department. Uh, My research looks at plural marriage within fundamentalist Mormon communities, uh, primarily based in the United States. Um, 
my experience with with sort of online um, webinars and teaching and so on extends back several years. Um, so before this pandemic, um, looking at uh, I've taught classes both online and in person and in a hybrid fashion, um, and I've also part, taken part as a student in a number of online classes as well. Actually, um, one one of my master's classes was was entirely online. Um, so a bit of, of experience from both sides of the coin, so to speak. Fantastic. So I'm going to start with a kind of really basic one, which is what for you as a student are the benefits of having had training and development opportunities available online? I think for me, as someone who is actually already lucky enough in some respects to be in Exeter um, most of the time and have access to in-person events the the question is one of flexibility if you're not able to make it to campus for a given day uh you don't feel excluded from the, the training and development opportunities that are going on and that's obviously less important for me than it might be for somebody who is based elsewhere but it's something that i don't think we should underestimate in my experience um the courses that i've done online were um sort of released in blocks so it allowed me to again as edward was just saying this element of flexibility it allowed me to sit over the course of a, a long weekend for example and bash out a few of the the um the week's worth of material um, and work through it and then put it to one side while I focused on research and then reapproach it again. So it, the element of flexibility, particularly um, when the material is presented in, in chunks, uh, is very helpful. I think for me, I, I quite often struggle with like passive listening. So particularly when it comes to like seminars or when someone is giving you information, you don't have to necessarily act on it straight away being online kind of enables me to do other things that let me really focus on what I'm listening to, um, which I know that some people like find that abhorrent, but really I've noticed the particular online seminars um, and yet things where you're listening passively, doing the dishes or doing a bit of knitting or something actually allows me to take in that information much more easily. And that's not something that would be necessarily you'd be able to do face to face. Like people find that quite rude if you sit there and do something else instead of listening to them. On top of what everyone else has already said, I think for me, the fact that a lot of the webinars are recorded and then put online makes it a lot more inclusive. And like what has been said before, if you miss something, you're able to go back and um, take it in again, which I think is a real benefit, where you know, obviously you can't do that in real life unless you have a dictaphone or you have permission to record the lecture in another way. Yeah, you can revisit it in a completely different way. Just to add to that, that also extends within the, um, within the seminar as well. So a lot of the conversation about going online seems to have been about how can we preserve the benefits of face-to-face -face teaching in an online environment where we don't have people in the same room. You can look at it the other way as well, I think, and actually it's something that, the, the, that I, I think the Research Development Programme has been doing in terms of what can online let you do that um, you're not able to do in face-to-face. -face. Uh, an example of this that's come from online teaching more than anything for me is that having a PowerPoint document which you edit live while screen sharing is a heck of a lot faster than writing on a whiteboard. And screen sharing in general uh, can be really useful for all kinds of teaching purposes if you want to demonstrate something. Um, and that would go for any research or development context as well. So it's, it's, it's also about what um, online teaching can offer that offline can't, rather than necessarily thinking in terms of how to preserve what we already have in offline, if that makes sense. That picks up on one of the really key things for me is that, you know, like Edward said, there is this concern about what we're going to lose from face-to-face -face teaching. Um, and certainly one of those main concerns seems to be about peer-to-peer -peer interaction and community building. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience of that in the online training you've attended. You know, have you felt this sense of loss of being able to interact with your peers? Have you felt that you haven't had the opportunity to build a community? 
I've actually found that, um, especially sort of in the time of COVID, when webinars have become more common, um, I've actually found that in the time since lockdown started, I've made more links with people at the University of Exeter than I had in the months between joining the university in September until um, March. So, so actually, I've found that the online forum, especially in smaller groups, um, has actually led to better um, friendships, professional relationships with other students. I think it does depend and there is a balance and sometimes things do have to give. Like, I found that a lot of the sort of webinars are attended where you have the face-to-face -face interaction. It just doesn't work as well. Like people switching from a mainstream to breakout rooms. So I've found works with some panel events, for example, but I haven't found it has worked particularly well in some training events I've, I've attended. Um, but then within sort of my own research group, we have our own little virtual sort of socialising medium. And, and that's worked quite well in just giving everyone a time to touch base and, and feel a bit more connected and less isolated. But I think it's very situational dependent, like it doesn't work in all mediums. And it does depend on how the facilitator, I guess, facilitates that and, and how they choose to, to go forward with it to make it inclusive as well. I, I'm going to build on what Megan said. I completely agree that in some situations, breakout rooms work well and sometimes they don't. But what I find really helpful and really inclusive is when the host remembers to say, I'm going to put you into a breakout room. If you don't want to go, if you don't want to partake in that part of the, the webinar, you do not have to. And I think that that's really, really helpful. Um, I attended a conference uh, online recently that was organised by the South Asia Centre at Exeter, which was international. It went to uh, universities in Pakistan and India, etc., and gave a paper over, over the screen online, which I'd never done before. Now, I know for a fact that that would not have been even offered if we hadn't been in the situation we're in now. Yeah, and I think there's been, you know, we've had that feedback as well, because of course we moved our three minute thesis competition online and that enabled distance students to engage where they wouldn't have been able to before if we were running it on campus. And so actually, you know, it, it has broadened um, broadened the net. And of course, you know, we know that conference attendance is expensive. We know that PGRs don't get a huge amount of um, money, if any at all, to attend them. and particularly for travel and accommodation and so running these things online does mean they can be more open and more accessible i mean we shouldn't just assume that um the online is automatically accessible and inclusive because there are some issues there and we, we might be able to pick up on those i'm going to take a side step for a minute and i want to know we'll do both sides of this but first of all i want to know what in your experience as a student, having been to lots of different online um, training and conferences and groups and all sorts of things, what's been really good practice for you from the, from the teacher, the person delivering? What, what kind of behaviours or approaches have you seen where you've gone, yes, that's actually really brilliant? For me, I think the big one is having a clear agenda. Like, I like to know what's going on and where where my active participation is required and where it's a bit more passive yeah um the other thing i think is important that i've actually yet to see is people providing the slides in a pdf format beforehand so a lot of screen readers don't work with just like a standard zoom screen um and that can be difficult for a lot of people but i think also for me i sometimes have problems like following along in person i know we've discussed that you can kind of use the time when you're online to look things up but that's not always practical or possible if it's something you do still want to engage in but you're not quite able to fully able you're not fully able to do it in that day um so i think definitely good practice is the agenda but also you know providing resources beforehand that means people can follow along at their pace rather than just assuming that everyone's got a great internet connection can move along as quickly as perhaps the person's trying to if they're trying to condense something into quite a short space of time I think one of the, the main things that I've seen that I think could benefit a lot of online sessions are having house rules at the start. So just in the first five minutes, 10 minutes, either verbally saying, 
or having up on the screen that reminding people that you're an adult, you're allowed to go to the bathroom when you want, you don't have to ask permission, you don't have to have your camera on, you don't have to speak if you don't want to, and just making it very clear the expectations from the session. So if it is an engaging session, then, you know, please try and engage and speak up where you feel comfortable, but it's not necessary. Those have been the, the main things that I've really, really appreciated, as well as having scheduled breaks and just checking in on people and saying you know I've covered the first section I was going to go into the second session before a break but if people want a break now that's fine so constantly adapting your time management because I've taken a couple of the I facilitated a couple of webinars and I don't realize how quickly I talk or how difficult it is when you don't have people in front of you how time just sort of flies by and it's been 25 minutes and you've gone through all your material and you're supposed to be talking for an hour but just saying you know we can now have 15 minutes to just chat or you can log off now or kind of just adapting as you go and constantly keeping the group up to date with where you are as a presenter uh, just making sure that someone can jump in and say you know please slow down or yep we've gone over this or anything like that. Yeah, I think that adaptability and being responsive is its even more important than it is in a face-to-face -face environment. One of the best training that I attended very recently was an online um, writing day, actually, and it was outside Exeter, as it turned out. It was another consortium that includes me whenever they do things. But one of the best things they did was um, sent preparation materials out in advance and even though it was an online retreat for writing it gave out some you know ideas about prepare by doing the following and the timings will be like this let us know if there's any and it just really made me think about how to make the most out of the day in advance and I think it, it paid off more I seem to be more so more productive because there was a lot of thought had gone into helping you know, to prepare and so on. So I think all of the things that you've said and including the, the rules and house rules so that everyone feels um, they know what, you know, what's expected, etc., is very beneficial. And because it's the sort of thing you would do in real life, you know, when you go into a room, you have, you know, whether it's pointing out the fire exits or whatever it might be, you're doing something that's practical and taking note of the environment you're sitting in. And of course, you're sitting behind a mic and you don't know anybody's personal circumstances or if they've got a, you know, a small child in the background or whatever it might be. But the point is that a little bit of prep in advance makes people more, I think it, it actually makes them more proactive and, and engaged when they take part as well. And so a lot of, it's interesting that a lot of the things that you've raised so far about good practice have actually been more kind of like, organizational i guess and about how you set out the virtual space rather than kind of content delivery so i wanted to know about kind of how how good online teachers are making content engaging for you and making it interesting i think one of the main things for me is when a session has been scheduled for two hours and it has got to like one and a half hour mark and the person's done and they don't try and just waffle on for the next half an hour. I think that that is really important and I'm not saying that this happens a lot in person but I do think that when you've been scheduled for a set amount of time there is a certain amount of pressure to just keep talking and keep delivering which isn't going to engage anyone and it's probably going to make people switch off more than anything else. So I think that that's really important to keep in mind that whether you're a uh, professor and you've been teaching for years and years or whether you're um, going to be facilitating a webinar to so just keep in mind that if you feel like you're waffling then it's likely that someone people are not going to be engaged they're not going to be concentrating and it's way better to um, get your point across concisely but not rush through it and just make sure that people are constantly or try try to make sure that people can be engaged throughout. Good uh, online teaching recognises the differences, I think, between um, it and traditional face-to-face -face teaching. So 
a lot of the a lot of the really good um, Zoom sessions I've been to, for example, um, have been hosted by people who have taken the time to actually investigate how the software works and what you can do with it. Um, I mean, let's face it, we're all kind of very excited at the idea of using the thumbs up to react button or the raise your hand button or things like that. Sounds silly, but I mean, it's true, right? Um, but that and things like screen sharing, um, when used well, let you do things you can't do with face-to-face. Uh, -face. And that can help with both clarity for content and also, I think, engagement as well. Um, so that some of the great, best examples that I've seen have been where people have used quite um, an interactive format and also utilized universal design. So someone mentioned earlier about making sure that PowerPoint slides are distributed in advance um, to enable people to access screen readers and so on. But also I think making things interactive, um, not just having somebody talk to the group and then wait for questions at the end, pausing at different intervals and asking for questions, utilizing the chat function. So questions can go into the chat function and having either the presenter, again, it depends on the size of the group, but it's either, either the presenter or, or designated person who's monitoring the chat, who can sort of notify the presenter that a relevant question is in the chat, which should probably be addressed at that point. And then the presenter can say, Philippa, uh, what, what's your question? And then, um, it can then form part of a conversation. Um, but it's also the presenter needs to recognize at what stage too many people in the, in the group means that certain things won't work efficiently. So th there is an element where the person who's presenting needs to have a little bit of um, knowledge about what groups work best in what formats and and how interact you can't have an interactive session with 200 people because everyone is just constantly going to talk over one another but in a group of six or seven that might be more appropriate yeah I just kind of wanted to build on what Ed said about making sure you understand the functionality of your software but also then sort of talking to your participants about their functionality so this was uh, a sort of a personal experience, but uh, some friends and I did a pub quiz, as did everyone um, during the lockdown. And we set up a round uh, based on uh, a popular TV game show where you had to guess where certain things were placed. And I assumed it would work fine for everyone. Turns out it was only fine for people using Zoom on a laptop. If they were trying to use it on a tablet, which a lot of people did, the um, touchscreen wouldn't allow them to press the button properly. So I think that getting to know your software but also getting to know how that translates to different devices within your participants if this is um something you can do in advance is definitely good practice to so make sure that you're inclusive and accessible and just beforehand asking for accessibility needs like do you need me to send the resources in advance you can have a screen reader making sure the agenda is clear making sure you set up breaks um with your content clearly accessible for people to be able to digest that in their own time yeah, and that's certainly something that we've encountered over the years in delivering, I mean, previously through Skype for Business is that, you know, some very simple things like depending on whether somebody's on a Mac or a, a Windows computer, um, the interface looks different. <laughs> and so, you know, being able to give somebody guidance and understand how different functionality works within a different operating system, you know, before, like you say, Megan, before you get into access on different devices and different versions of these software on different devices have different functionality. And if you're using a lot of that kind of interactive functionality, then you need to be aware of how that may or may not work on all devices and therefore be able to offer alternative versions. Let's talk a little bit about interactive functionality. So thinking about all of the different systems that <laughs> over the course of the past few months we've all become familiar with everything's got variations on kind of similar functionality some of which is is a bit more flashy than others what's your kind of your feeling about some of the interactive tools that are built into these systems so we've had the chat box mentioned we've had breakout rooms mentioned but you can also have polls and whiteboards and how how do you feel about these tools and how kind of engaging do you find them great if everyone knows how they work and it is the 
host responsibility to explain that. I've seen, I'm guilty of this myself actually, having started a poll and then not really explained it and then not had any engagement with it because people didn't know it was there. Um, so I think they, they're all really useful um, and they replace a lot of the things that universities have spent a lot of money on in recent years, things like, you know, in, in-person uh, voting handsets, for example, in face-to-face -face teaching. But it's the responsibility of the um, presenter, deliverer of that session to explain quite clearly, particularly this new technology or something we're not familiar with, how it works. Um, yeah, I think broadly they can be used well, but as long as they're used meaningfully, people aren't just using them because they can. And I think even in face-to-face -face teaching, you see a lot of that people using it so that they can tick off their sort of digital box. Um, and I think broadly, they work well if they're used to add to meaningful discussion but sometimes i feel in some of the courses i've been in it's it's been a bit pointless and i don't really feel like it's achieved anything or contributed to the session like i find sometimes the incessant polling a bit much as we move to online we need to consider are we doing this for the sake of doing it mm -hmm. that worked face to face or are we doing this because it's going to give us something meaningful yeah and that's a really important issue for me as somebody um, who's kind of been engaging with and researching blended learning for some time is it, it it's actually about what the tools can actually add to the learning and to the session and actually you know over the I mean this is the sort of fifth year that I've been doing online teaching and it's been growing every year and actually the tool that fundamentally I think has had the most impact in online teaching is the chat box. It's possibly the simplest tool in there, but like, I can't remember, I think it was Philip, was it Philippa that was saying, you know, you can continue conversation um, and engagement and all those sorts of things throughout the session. And that's where the peer learning can happen. Um, so we've talked about the good, probably about time we talked about the bad. So what, in your experience of online training, what have you seen people do that hasn't been that great or hasn't been that, should we say, isn't that engaging for you? Um, so I did a, I guess it was a full day's uh, session with an external company and I don't want to name and shame, but broadly they expected you to be plugged in with your video and audio on the whole day, which was just exhausting for mm. me. And I think also, you know, we, it's not a natural thing to do when you go and do these things face to face, you're not staring at someone's face all day. And they, they, they scheduled in breaks, which was great. And I, he was like, Oh, you know, go and take five minutes and go and get a cup of tea. So that's exactly what I did. And I came back then. And cause at that point, um, so I went to get a cup of tea and because at that point when I came back, it was just listening and it was passive. I went to drink my cup of tea and he literally stopped and said, oh, I hope you're enjoying that tea, Megan. And I was really put out because I thought, well, number one, I don't really see why I need my camera on right now. But number two, I'm literally just doing what you said. You know, I went to get my cup of tea. And I think particularly during lockdown as well, not something I've experienced, but um, other PhD students who've done some external training said that at one point they were told to go outside and have a walk, which I thought was ridiculous and also so... Um, it, it was ridiculous, but also it wasn't very inclusive because they didn't know who at that point was self-isolating, who was shielding. So how could they talk about their experiences of a walk if they couldn't go outside? And I think broadly for me, the bad practice I've seen is th not thinking about people's inclusive situations. You know, as we've already mentioned, people might have children, might have pets, people are working from home, people have lives. So I think the requirement to be switched on for a whole day is too much but also just having respect that people are not going to be just concentrating on you for the yeah. whole period i was going to add that as we discussed in the past um kelly zoom fatigue is a thing and some of the less successful uh, events i've been to over zoom are the ones that don't acknowledge that just to come back to what was what was just said um so ones that require video to be on or ones which which and it's quite easy to do this as a facilitator i think to expect or to hope for the same uh, indicators of engagement that you might get in a face-to-face -face meeting. Um, for example, expectant looks up 
at a camera in front of in front of all the audience is not something you can realistically ever get in a an online environment but face to face it's you know if you've got an audience you know following you that can be really quite exciting as a as a, a deliverer of this kind of content so if you go into an online session expecting um exactly the same behaviors from an audience who could be in any number of different places have any number of different things in the room with them haven't necessarily well definitely haven't come to that place where you are from out of their house slash office slash i don't know private island they will then you're, you're you're setting yourself up effectively to mismanage a session i think i'm basically going to echo what's already been said but two things that are real negatives for me are when it seems to be a session for session's sake which is something that i've i've signed up to a series of webinars online and the the last one or you know one of the middle ones is just them sort of talking at you and it felt very pointless but something that a phrase that I saw on Twitter which I would really like to echo is we are not working from home we are living at work we are living at the gym and for so many people you are literally living in one single room and it could be at the top of a 10-story block it could be yeah, that you have children or pets or whatever else. And so not being inclusive, it is so easy nowadays to say, you know, take things at your own pace. Pace of life right now has slowed down massively, at least for me, because I've not been able to go into the lab. So it's very much been about what can I do for myself and other people when I'm interacting with them online? What can I do to make sure that they're engaged and happy? Because otherwise there's just no point. So trying to force people to take part in polls or, you know, going on walks or for one of them, I had to build a really a tower as tall as I could out of the things in my room. And I was thinking, I've been sitting staring at someone since nine o'clock this morning. It's now half past three. This could have ended by now. You've given me the worthwhile information, which I appreciate. But these like team building things when if you want to take part in them that's great but forcing people to take part is something that will just it makes me not want to take part in any um webinar type things again yeah i think that's that's really powerful and like i think i think it was you that said earlier jennifer like you know if it you and it's what you do face to face if it's come to an end and it's reached a natural end, do not drag it out. It's the absolute worst thing that you can do. And, and I think particularly in an online environment, because that, that fatigue of staring at the screen is very real. Um, so, so kind of just going off the back of that, um, so I've seen it where materials have been distributed in advance of a session, and I'm not talking about a week in advance, I'm talking about just a few hours before the session and those materials being completely inaccurate and they're not the same version of the powerpoints for example that are shown on the screen and it's quite clear that whoever is presenting the session uh, and i'm actually the, the example i'm thinking of is an external um but they they, they they distributed a powerpoint presentation which had either been adapted from something else or they'd in the in the hours between distributing it and actually presenting, they'd made a lot of changes to the presentation, and it just it it was frustrating as a, as a participant to have this information that wasn't relevant because I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, so I can't really deal very well with things that are just on the screen. So I like to have my materials in advance, print them out, and then I can make notes as the presentation is happening. Well, if those PowerPoint slides have been changed around in order or some of them have been added or taken away or the the verbiage has been changed it makes it incredibly difficult for me to stay engaged so i think it's very important that that people who are leading sessions have very relevant information and stuff that they're going to cover don't just send information for the sake of sending things don't send six journal articles for people to read if realistically people aren't going to be able to read that many articles and there's only room for discussing discussing one of them because we've all been there where we've been to an in-person seminar where 
the material you're given to discuss in that seminar is much more than can be discussed. So everyone just leaves feeling a little bit sort of annoyed that they've read all of this extra stuff when they, they, there are more important things they could have done with their time. So I think it's about making sure that the information that distri that's distributed is relevant, is up to date and is correct as it goes live. Um, and also that any reading and prep that participants need to do in advance is kept to a minimum and a manageable amount. Are there any other things that you've seen or heard people do and you've gone, actually, that's really off-putting for me as a participant? Feedback. It's one of the, one of the technical gremlins that we all get, I think. Um, but when feedback is there and not acknowledged by the, by the host, by feedback, I mean, the kind of thing, 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 thing that happens, 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 when someone is, and, and it, it bounces around different microphones and gets picked up and distorted. Um, when that's dealt with quickly and efficiently, uh, whether that's by asking other people to mute themselves or just checking it out one by one, that's great. Um, what it doesn't is one of the most infuriating things I think we've ever come across in, uh, in Zoom meetings. I hope people would agree with me on that, that feedback is the bait, can be the bane of a presenter's life sometimes. So another thing which is, is kind of, um, it's a bit of an elephant in the room in that um, it's all of this sort of presupposes that people have a good access to an a good, uh, access yes. to a good internet connection. And some of the issues with feedback and poor quality can sometimes be due to the fact that someone is using a poor internet connection or an, there, there might be several people trying to work from home at the same time. And I actually had a, um, a session that I was part of a few weeks ago when the person who was presenting kept having to come come off the call and reconnect because their internet was so strained and i so i think not not sort of putting the onus on the people who are presenting but i think there's also a duty from you know thinking about this as a bigger picture from this you know we're all going through this global pandemic and institutions need to be cognizant of what the means are of of the their students in that you know some students might not be able to afford the tools they need in order to do what we're doing right now you know some some students may not have access to a decent computer they might not have access to a decent internet connection and it's about institutions providing that for them i as a, as, a, as someone who has got um learning differences i get um disabled students allowance and once upon a time and because i've been a perpetual student once upon a time, disabled students allowance used to pay for your internet if you had certain um, disabilities. But that doesn't happen anymore because it's expected that everybody has access to good internet and not everybody can afford that. Some students are living hand to mouth and will have previously been relying on going into the university every day and using university resources, including good internet connections. So suddenly being thrown into um, this sort of you know, lockdown scenario people have i've heard of people tethering their phones to their computers to use their phone data then running out of that and not having access you know you can't just go down to starbucks or or insert coffee shop of your choice um, in order to access internet and so it can be a real strain for a lot of people and i think that needs to be acknowledged at sort of a DSA sort of government level, but also institutional levels as well. And I think Exeter are actually doing a pretty good job at making sure that they are providing for students who have those needs. But I'm not sure that every institution is doing such a great job. Yeah, and I, I, I think that, that assumption of having a computer and having an internet access um, is, is really prevalent and we've had those conversations with academics preparing to, to teach undergraduates of kind of like but we actually can't assume a certain mode or method of access um even though we think of these things as being ubiquitous we think that everybody's got them but i mean particularly one of the things that i know that we've had to deal with as um research development over the years is that we've got students all over the world so we've had to deal with time differences and we've had to deal with um you know i remember somebody who was really struggled with the powerpoint slides they just wouldn't load for them and it's because they were in a remote area of thailand 
um, and they just did not have a good enough quality in internet connection. We had quite a lot of um, quite a lot of students who were abroad who were primarily accessing recordings because they just don't have the bandwidth to watch something live. And so I think that's also where not just that recognition and that stepping up of institutions of saying you can't just assume these things are accessible and are ubiquitous, but also that you need to provide alternatives for people in different situations. There's also another assumption at times, and one which I suppose I feel um, includes me in a sense, and it is my responsibility to, I suppose, train myself to keep up with and to learn new IT as it comes along. But it's one of the things I've found very difficult and it intimidates me to some extent. And of course, um, I've I've learned an awful lot in, in recent times that I probably wouldn't have been forced to do so if we haven't been in this situation. However, um, I think that there is an assumption of skill and ability sometimes where what some, one of or a couple of the worst sessions I've been in is where and polls come into this, where polls have been used and I would say probably too for questionable means, whether they were useful or not. And I, I've had difficulty even managing to keep up with the speed at which the responses were expected and you know felt really uncomfortable and I couldn't keep up with that and I mean it's not just because I'm in that particular age group where I'm, I'm trying to deal with um, new things that I'm finding difficult it's um, there's an assumption of knowledge sometimes which is quite difficult to keep up with I mean I'm forcing myself to to do that but if to deliver webinars, etc. And one of the things which has still kept me from getting more involved is I'm slightly afraid of having to deal with other people's IT difficulties and their remote connections that I could barely deal with my own. And you're right, Pauline. And I think that we can't make, again, we can't make that assumption based on, there are lots of people who, you know, have grown up with technology that are still that still don't have a high level of technical experience or technical literacy and and again it's one of those really challenging assumptions and so it's making sure that whether the person is an attendee or a presenter that they have all of the all of the support that they need and certainly i mean in terms of the way we run our our kind of formal webinars is we always have an administrator who deals with the technical kind of troubleshooting issues. Part of that is so that the presenter can focus on just that presenting rather than dealing with technical issues. But it also usually means that it's someone that's more experienced with the system um, who, who has the experience and the knowledge to, to answer those questions and to do that troubleshooting with people. Um, doesn't mean we can always answer everyone's problems. We certainly cannot, <laughs> but there seems to be a lot coming out there about inclusivity and our, our assumptions around people's setup and how people are accessing things and, um, and how people want to engage, I guess, and particularly where, you know, Megan, you talked about people expecting you to have your camera on or expecting you to go you know people saying you expected to go into breakout rooms actually we're making a lot of assumptions there about he, how people want to engage but also how people want to learn you know we we recognize that people learn differently and so and yet we're not necessarily giving people the opportunity to learn differently yeah i just wanted to really support and echo what you were saying in that i don't think the way a lot of people have moved things to online is inclusive for everyone's learning style um, i'm happy to sit and read but i'm also happy to sit and listen but ask me to do both at the same time and i really struggle with that and i think that regardless of whether you're neurotypical or you struggle with um visual spatial or other types of learning providing multiple resources and doing things at a slower pace has helped with that but yet like we're in the move to online I think we forget that not everyone learns in the same way and I think particularly at Exeter we've made great strides in, in how to make our lectures more inclusive and accessible but now we've kind of moved to online I feel like a lot of the physical mechanisms we put in place and are no longer there. Yeah and it's a whole new set of considerations I actually and I'll link it in the show notes I I did a accessibility of e-learning course um at the open university just a, it was a free online course and 
was it's largely about kind of static so you know asynchronous online resources but nonetheless it was really interesting to look at some of the some of the commentary around some really specific technical issues around things like screen readers and some of those things that we've talked about today but also actually the fundamental pedagogical imperative of regardless of accessibility um, and inclusivity we should be providing things in multiple formats and engagement in in multiple ways because because of that very thing because people learn differently and so we should be providing things in a way that gives people the option of how to engage and in a way that's going to help them learn i think that people presenting online should be encouraged to like others have said send out the material beforehand but then not be put off when someone would like access material and might like access the recording afterwards then doesn't necessarily they're either not able to attend the actual session or for whatever reason they can't engage with webinars. I think that that needs to be normalized a bit more because for me, I need to have something like hammered into me. I need to read it loads, write it, hear it. And so for me, getting the materials beforehand would help engaging with the material during and after. That would all be great. But I know for some webinars, I've not been able to, um, I've not been able to attend them in person, but I've asked for the the materials anyway and some people have been great and said yes of course like that's such a shame that you can't engage but I'll send you the slides or the notes later and some people have said well no if you're not able to come and engage in in person <laughs> in inverted commas if you're not able to attend the webinar then no I'm not giving you my material which is understandable but I do think that it'd be really nice if we could be a little bit more open in sharing our best practice if there are people listening to this who are new to delivering online, what's the one thing you want them to bear in mind? Take it slower than you think you need to take it and be kind both to yourself and to the people in the seminar with you. Yeah, that's, I think that that's taking it slower is really, really important because like somebody said earlier, you're, all of the things that all of the communicative tools that someone might read off you in person and that you would read off a room are out of the window and so I find I get a lot more tired doing online teaching because I'm doing an awful lot more with my voice than I would normally um, to communicate and to make things more engaging Accessibility, um, utilising universal design. Um, I'm sort of almost horrified at the number of people who still don't do this. Um, and, and especially considering that providing resources for people who have you know, registered learning differences or physical disabilities that might prevent them from engaging in certain ways. Um, the fact that some people are still not providing accessible resources sort of quite kind of shocks me in the year of 2020. Um, so I think just making sure that things are presented in, in different formats are accessible to those and, and even just emailing participants in advance and saying, what is there that I can do to make this session more accessible to your needs? And that the, the person leading the session doesn't need to know what the needs of the people are at that point. They don't need to be a member of the um, university who might get a copy of their learning um, sort of uh, what's it called the their uh, the the sort of document that they get that that details what resources individuals need to put them on an equal par with their peers um, but just emailing participants and saying what is it that I can do to make this session more accessible to you and then people can email and say powerpoints in advance or please put on screen captions or would it be possible to have a transcript produced afterwards? Those sorts of things would, would help a lot of people. I would say attend other online sessions and note down what you found helpful and what you didn't, and then try and learn from that because it's such an on, well, such a weird world being online and trying to keep people engaged. And so the more experience you have of being a participant, 
the better informed you will be trying to create sessions that will be engaging. And there's just one other thing that I wanted to say, which sort of links back to what we were saying about how amazing some webinars are and how we've been able to attend some all over the world and conferences that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend. It's also about being inclusive of industry or your non-institutional um, partners. I think that's something really important to keep in mind as well. Uh, yeah, just to kind of echo what's been said already, I think definitely be aware of your pace. Don't be afraid to take things more slowly. That is something I am very guilty of and I have a habit of speaking quite quickly. So I very much, if I'm leading a session, remind people that, that I'm completely comfortable with them asking me to repeat something, say something slower, go over a concept. But I think more broadly as well is, is really focusing on the accessibility and inclusivity. So making sure that you've got a variety of resources accessible to as many different people as you can think of, but also echoing what's been said earlier, making sure that if this is something you can do in advance, get in touch with people and check that they can have everything catered for. And particularly as a participant who potentially hasn't been involved in this before, they may not even know what to ask for. So making sure that you, you give that clear agenda and structure of what you plan to do and what is expected, what the house rules are, gives people an idea of what they may need from you as well. I think we're going to draw it to a close there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me this afternoon and offering your, your insights into your experience as, um, as students, as the recipients of online training and development. And that's it for this episode. A long one, I know, but I think incredibly valuable with some really important discussions. And I was really um, heartened to hear coming through that that drive of accessibility and inclusivity um, because my own reflections during this period have been, yes, technology can be a leveller, but we can't just assume that because we've moved something online, it's more accessible and more inclusive. There's still a lot of work to be done. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.